Hello, this is Smart Investing in the United States, and I'm your host, Kevin Chambers. Today we're fortunate to have Robert Lochran with us. Robert is a partner at Foster Global. He's an expert on immigration and investment visas and has decades of experience working with foreign investors in the United States. Robert is a graduate of the University of Texas, but also studied in Chile, among other places. Where else did you study, Robert? Also in Spain, in Concepcion, Chile, at Universidad de Concepcion, and then at Universidad Complutense de Madrid in uh, Madrid, Spain, uh, European uh, comparative law, constitutional law, um, and, uh, and uh, the relative histories of uh, Spain and uh, Chile as well. Robert joined the U.S. Commercial Service in the Nordics for a select USA Nordic Roadshow a few months ago with seminar stops in Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, and Estonia. I was impressed not only by his knowledge of the subject, but his ability to explain it clearly. I have looked forward to sharing his expertise with a wider audience. So I thought we might begin by talking about what an immigration attorney does. Many of our listeners may never have worked with an immigration attorney. They may be looking at investing in the United States for the first time. Robert, could you tell us what an immigration attorney does for a living? Sure, I'd be happy to. I think um, one of the older terms for, uh, for uh, lawyers in the United States has been attorneys and counselors at law. And uh, what that, uh, how that relates to the immigration context, or at least the employment-based, what we call employment-based or investment-based immigration, is that um, it's an area where there's uh, a law out there, or you know, the Immigration and Nationality Act, and then there are regulations um, issued by the Department of State and the Citizenship and Immigration Service, and then there are memos and guidance and training um, and procedures that are local to specific uh, consulates or, or ju jurisdiction in the U.S. And what we do as immigration attorneys is we um, keep track of all the information, written and unwritten. You know, uh, much of it is uh, almost everything is reduced to writing in some, some sense. But um, many times what appears possible from the, uh, uh, by doing some Internet research is not really practical. It's not the way things are going to turn out. And so as um, immigration attorneys, particularly in the investment arena, we have people who come in and they consult with us and they tell us their hopes and their dreams and what they hope to do and when, when they hope to do it. And we let them know um, what is possible, what is probable, what the likely responses of the, uh, of the government authorities are going to be. And then we, um, we help the uh, individual put their best foot forward to present true facts in the, uh, in the light that, uh, that best puts forth their, um, their investment, their opportunities for job uh, creation in the United States, and to, um, to look at things, um, sort of pre-screen them as a consular officer might do, and uh, give them feedback in advance so that they can make a very good first impression and, and uh, have a visa issued. and, and be admitted into the United States and pursue their, their dreams in the United States. U.S. visa laws can be a bit complicated for most of us non-attorney types. And since even a modest mistake in the visa application can mean a delay or even a denial, it's important for our listeners to contact a visa or an immigration attorney before they even begin the application process. Do you agree, Robert? I absolutely agree, and we can be most effective in the um, in sort of the uh, vetting of a of an idea when someone says I'm thinking about relocating to the U.S. and this is what I would hope to do. Um, we can give them feedback at an early stage as to what is possible and what is likely, and when it is um, what is not a good idea is to submit something either to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services or to the State Department and get a denial or a request for evidence 
and then contact an immigration attorney because there's a uh, there is a famous American saying that you only get one chance to make a first impression. And one thing that uh, I think uh, most listeners uh, would agree about is the uh, United States is very focused on capturing information and retaining records. And if you submit uh, an application in January of 2016, you can expect the the federal government to be able to pull it up in 2020 or 2022. And uh, if you're revising your presentation um, and the government is, is presenting to you, well, you said this, um, you know, uh, six months ago, or you said this a year ago, where, you know, were you lying then or are you lying now? And, and I, I use that term lying because um, most uh, investors don't, are, are not lying and they're not intending to deceive anyone. It's just that the, um, the immigration rules and, and, and laws are written in such a way that certain people are qualified and certain people are not qualified. And if you say something, perhaps because of a translation issue or you didn't mean it that, that sense of the word, um, and you say, I'm going to go relocate to the United States, or I'm going to go move to the United States, and um, I'm going to liquidate everything I have here in Norway or Sweden or anywhere in the, in, in the world, um, then if you don't realize that your immigration category doesn't allow for that, it allows for you, because the weird way that the uh, law was written, um, 35 years ago that uh, the treaty investor category requires you to maintain a residence abroad to which you intend to return or at least manifest an intention to go back to your home country should the business fail. If you don't understand that, you could have done uh, a tremendous amount of work and perhaps even committed hundreds of thousands of dollars to a business in the United States and be denied because you um, have manifested immigrant intent that you've told the consular officer that you intend to move to the United States and become a permanent resident, and that category does not allow it. And the consular officer might be very sympathetic and might be very friendly and say, I'm sorry, um, you have presented information to me which disqualifies you from this category, and I cannot approve it. And um, the consular officers in the United States, um, they have discretion, but there are certain times where, they're, as they will tell you, their hands are tied. When something goes into the record which shows that someone is not qualified for any reason to come to the United States, um, they cannot move forward. That's good to know. For those people who have not been to a U.S. Embassy or consulate before, the consular officers you speak of are the ones correct. they have the yes. interviews um, with. The consular officers correct? are technically um, foreign service officers of the United States, and um, most of them are commissioned officers, commissioned and having their commission ratified by the U.S. Congress. And it's, it's a very lofty position, and these individuals perhaps hope to be uh, negoti negotiating um, trade deals or arms, arms limitation packs or what have you, but because the um, State Department needs people to issue visas, um, usually junior officers in their first tour, um, their first two years in the State Department uh, will, will many times be posted to a, to a consulate to issue visas, and they will sort of have to learn on the job um, something which may or may not be what they were interested in, but they're, they're there to serve their country and to evaluate the applications that are put before them. So they are usually very intelligent people, um, very well-educated. They have to go through competitive testing um, to be admitted into the Foreign Service. It's a very low acceptance rate, so it's, it's very prestigious to become a consular officer. But, um, but then again, they are not going to have years of experience um, and understanding of the immigration laws when they are put at a window at a uh, U.S. Uh, consulate or embassy abroad and put in charge of issuing the visas. Hmm. That's good to know. Um, according to Wikipedia, there's 185 different 
kinds of U.S. visas, but fortunately only a few of them would be of interest to a business that's thinking of investing or expanding in the United States. Can you kind of give us an overview of uh, which visas uh, would be yes. relevant to an investor? First of all, the, um, if, if our, I know that uh, this podcast may be listened to from, by people from all over the world, but that initially it's intended for people from the Nordic region, from Scandinavia and the surrounding countries. And most of those, con- most of those nationalities are what's called visa waiver. And visa waiver is an administrative process um, that allows individuals to get on a plane and come to the United States without going to a U.S. consulate. Um, And that's very relevant because it's a waiver of the visitor visa application, which is B1-B2. B1 is business visitor. B2 is is uh, someone coming for tourism, going to Disneyland or just to see New York City or Hollywood or where, where or coming to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. So those individuals becoming as, as B2 or to come see Formula One here in, in Austin as well, that, that would be a B2 visitor. So someone with um, – that has an overlay on it recently, which is people now know it as ESTA, which I believe is Electronic Security Travel Authority. And what that is, is just when you're buying your ticket, you data enter um, your biographic information and background checks are done on you to to establish that you're not a criminal or a terrorist and that you do not have um, previous problems with your immigration history. And the way it works now is then you're allowed to proceed and purchase the ticket and and ESTA can be valid for uh, a few years. Um, Again, that is a waiver of the need to go to the consulate, but the individual is still a visitor coming into the United States. And your question about what, why would this be relevant to investors, be, and the answer is, I think very few people um, have a couple hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars to send to somebody in the United States to invest in a piece of land or a restaurant or a, a manufacturing facility without coming over here and looking at it and doing a due diligence visit. So I think that is a, a critical issue that that those who are of visa waiver nationalities make sure that they come over and they uh, are one of our American sayings is kick the tires. If they come over and look at that which they might be investing in, they meet with not only an immigration attorney but with business advisors, someone who um, is doing a, a similar type of business in the United States, not merely the person who might be selling the business or promoting the, the business in which they hope to invest. But also we in the United States, we have um, many public institutions that promote investments. Uh, we have uh, incubators and branches of our state governments that, um, that can direct um, uh, potential investors at uh, low cost and sometimes no cost to um, sort of disinterested third parties who don't have a um, do not have a a financial stake in whether you invest in this business or not, and instead they just merely advise you on the strengths and weaknesses, perhaps assist you with the site location that uh, that the business that you're looking at is is doesn't have a high enough traffic pattern, not enough people are passing by your business for the type of business that it might be, or to help you investigate as to why previous businesses have failed in that area, or that, that you know, the United States is a huge country and a business that might be very successful in Los Angeles might, um, might fail miserably in Omaha, Nebraska, or, or the opposite. And just because property is so much cheaper in Omaha, Nebraska than it is in Los Angeles, doesn't necessarily make it a better business opportunity given what your interest is. So um, we think it's critical for for individuals to either come over on ESTA and look at a potential investment, or alternatively, if they're not um, from, uh, if they don't hold a passport, which is visa-free into the United States, or um, one recent change is if they're also a dual national with certain Middle East countries or they've traveled to Syria or Iraq recently, their ESTA will likely um, be denied or, or revoked and they will need to go in, set an appointment online and go in and, 
and go into an embassy or consulate and speak to a consular officer who's on the other side of uh, uh, blast-resistant glass to, um, to convince that consular officer that they will be returning to their home country and that the purpose of their trip to the due diligence uh, that they're going to do in the United States is lawful. And there, there are very specific uh, guidance to the consular officers that if someone is well established in their home country but they seek to invest in the United States, that coming to the United States for months at a time and perhaps on multiple trips to do the necessary preparations, meet with attorneys, meet with uh, with the uh, with potential uh, sellers of land or buildings or businesses, um, and to meet with advisors uh, um, is all appropriate as visitor activity. So after, go ahead. So. It, it, ESTA uh, I was is going to ask, uh, uh, ESTA is not the same thing as a B-1 visa. the need then. for a visa in your passport, but the activities in which you engage are absolutely, or which you're allowed to engage, are absolutely the same as a B-1, B-2. So the difference is the sticker in your passport, but the activity, what you're allowed to do, is precisely the same in ESTA as it is for a let's say, an Argentine national who requires a B-1, B-2 in their, in their passport. A, a Norwegian with an ESTA is allowed to do the same things in the United States and enter for the same reasons as an Argentine with a B-1, B-2 in, in their passport. The difference is um, purely procedural and that the, that, the, um, that the Norwegian coming in on ESTA will ha be admitted for 90 days, uh, generally speaking, as a matter of course. And they cannot be admitted for 91 days and not 92, and they cannot extend from within the United States. If a Norwegian needs to come in for four months or six months or, or longer um, to, uh, because they're very serious and they're getting ready or have invested some money and they're going to invest some more money into the U.S. and they're able to establish the reason why they need to be there for longer than 90 days, then they may need to go affirmatively apply in Oslo, which will be seen as somewhat odd. You're able to come to the United States without a visa. Why are you here? And then I would, I would suggest that, uh, that even a simple visitor visa, that, um, that a, a, in that case someone from a visa waiver country would consult with an immigration attorney so that they could show why is ESTA not good enough because it is going to seem odd and it is going to raise the, uh, the attention of a consular officer because it is uncommon. Um, it's such a small fraction of all the people who are coming to the United States who need to stay for four months or six months or what have you that, um, that you need to be prepared with a document to show your connections back to your home country. Mm, okay. Okay, so I was sort well, of dealing about with the other sequentially, kinds of visas, so I was uh, saying that you should either uh, come over um, on ESTA slash visa waiver or get a B visa and come over and do your due diligence. Once you've decided that you are actually going to make this investment and you're, getting, uh, you've, you're moving funds and you're putting a substantial amount of money into a specific business in the United States, then you can look at it um, primarily either as an L1 intracompany transferee if that is, if you're continuing, if you have an ongoing business abroad which, in which you've been working for one of the last three years. If instead you're just, you, you do not, you're quitting your job in, um, in your home country and, you're, or, and or you're selling your business and you're taking the proceeds of that money and you're putting into the U.S., then an L1 would no longer be available to you because you do not have a a parent or, or affiliate company abroad uh, from which you can transfer yourself from, um, from let's say, Sweden to the United States. Um, and so an e-visa, either treaty investor or treaty trader visa, would be the most common. And I would um, – we can talk about the L visa a little bit further, but let me just boil it down to an L visa requires – uh, number one, that there be a U.S. company and a company outside of the U.S. Number two, that the individual who's coming to the United States has worked for the, the related company abroad for one of the last three years. 
number three, that the individual who's being transferred to the United States have either a managerial or executive role, which is an L1A, or alternatively that they have proprietary knowledge that is um, important to the company. Now, I'm going to take a pause here and sort of reflect back at what I said at the beginning about that whole attorney and counselor at law. And while um, we've been securing L visas and, uh, and uh, securing thousands of them for individuals and thousands of what are called new office L visas, which are uh, a subset of the L visa category in which the, uh, the government's allowed to apply extra scrutiny say you're in the first years of, of setting up your U.S. Um, operation, so we're going to sort of put you under probation and, um, and require, require more documentation from you and issue the visa for one year instead of, instead of three years um, so that you have to come back and show us that what are the results of your first year. Um, I can tell you that from experience and based on political um, issues that are going on in the United States and have been going on for over a decade, that the L-1 visa gets a tremendous amount of scrutiny, number one. Right now, it's under political attack, number two. Number three, it has to be adjudicated by, um, by citizenship and immigration services examiners in a remote facility, either in Laguna Niguel, California, um, which is it's sort of a, a warehouse setup where there's no interaction with the public. You cannot call them. You cannot email them. They're in their cubicles looking at the paperwork and deciding yes or no. Or in, in uh, St. Albans, Vermont, another picturesque uh, community um, with a, a beautiful small town and another uh, warehouse type of facility. And those individuals um, are not able to interact um, with with the public. The reason I raise that as an important issue is that um, remember when I spoke a moment ago about the consular officers and they being highly intelligent, highly motivated, highly educated, and well-selected individuals? Someone from a Nordic country or yes. a visa waiver country um, can, who can go in and look eye-to-eye with a consular officer and present their case um, is in a much better position than someone who has to uh, package up um, six inches worth of documents and put it in the mail and send it to either Laguna Niguel, California, or St. Albans, uh, Vermont. And what I mean by that is the consular officer will, um, will while they may have at just a little bit of immigration understanding, their supervisor will have a significant amount of immigration understanding. And the, what's called the Foreign Service National, the, the long-term employees from that country who work in the consulate and assist the consular officers, they'll have a good understanding of, um, of the country conditions, of the social services available, in the stereotypes of the individuals, they'll be able to check into their background. They'll be able to get on the internet and look at uh, look up the person and understand what that means. They can also send out um, they can uh, send out investigators to to look at uh, the the facts that the applicant is putting in front of them. But what I'm saying here is that um, you are given much more of a fair shot. Um, in an e-visa application, which is only presented to the consular officer, you do not need to file it with the Citizenship and Immigration Services. You're not, you're not subjecting yourself to uh, um, a many-month delay of pre-review. And if your documentation is in order and if you otherwise qualify, then I think that U.S. consular officers are happy um, to issue you e and e-visa. And while <clears throat> that might seem odd, I cannot uh, emphasize enough that the difference in disposition, both in background and disposition of a consular officer, which is one thing, which is a, a, a bright, young, well-educated person who feels good, generally speaking, about the people in the country in which they're posted and wants, must obey the law and must, must uh, uh, do everything within the regulations and statutes, but they want to help. And they also have a secondary mission to promote trade 
between the United States and, and that, um, the country in which they're posted. A citizenship and immigration um, adjudicator in Laguna Niguel, California, or uh, St. Albans, Virginia, um, they might not have any college education. Um, they are usually uh, individuals who have civil service points from previous government um, service, and they, um, they are influenced by the politics currently going on within the United States. And currently, uh, particularly for the last five years, they sort of have a culture of no, um, and they're looking, they have templates that they're applying to cases. So um, at this time, for the last few years and, and for the future, I would think those who can qualify for an E would be um, much better disposed to pursue an E rather than an L when that's possible. Now, um, E's are also available to very large companies, which also qualify for L's, um, and sometimes for the Volvos of the world or the Nokias of the world, an E can be very straightforward, um, and an L can be very straightforward. So it just becomes a, um, a decision at that point. But for a new business at this time, um, you get uh, more of a fair hearing um, at the consulate in an E application than you might in an L application. And an L application will involve two sets of review. It will involve the CIS, which we're most concerned about, and then it'll have, everything will be re-reviewed by the consular mm. officer at what time the, it, it's at the time to issue the visa. So we would we would uh, strongly recommend to move towards E's. Now there are alternative visas um, out there. Um, in the abstract, um, H-1Bs are possible mm. for someone who is coming um, to be employed by um, a company in the United States that the position needs to be uh, uh, an alien and specialty occupation position for the H-1B. It means that they have to um, have a college degree and the position which they're coming to fill must um, require that college degree, not any college degree, but that one. If it's a chemistry position, you know, must have a, a chemist position must have a degree in chemistry. If it's an engineering position, you must have a degree in a specific type of engineering. Accounting position, you must have a degree in, in accounting. There are situations in which that comes up. There are also situations in which um, once the U.S. Um, company is started, you may want to bring over some trainees from, uh, from abroad uh, in the H3 category to, for a vendor or a client um, to get some training in the U.S. and then send them back abroad. But that's uh, very rare that that comes up because you must establish that the individuals are not merely disguised labor in the United States. There are exchange visitor programs, a J-1 program. Um, that's usually an eight, uh, you know, either three to 18-month program where people can come over and, and um, uh, usually young people get a sense of uh, what the United States is like, um, perhaps get some training in their profession, maybe you know some graduate training or some internships or, or the like. But in general, when we're talking about investors, primarily and specifically we're talking about coming from a Scandinavian country, we're looking at an E or we're looking at an L. And I think um, there, uh, when I was there last, people were asking me about EB-5. And EB-5 is for those who intend to immigrate to the United States. And in, in U.S. law, there is a tremendous distinction between an H&L, which are non-immigrant visas for people who are coming to the United States and they, um, they will return or they're here for one year or three years or five years and it's potentially extendable, and someone who's saying, I am leaving my home country and I am transitioning to the United States as a permanent resident. Um, the EB-5 category is available for that, and um, our firm does uh, hundreds of EB-5s a year and has done thousands of them uh, over time, but um, EB-5s are for a specific uh stereotype of individual, some, again, someone who is liquidating what they have abroad and moving over to the United States and is willing to accept all the laws of the United States and all the worldwide taxation of the United States. So EB-5 is generally not a, a good thing for someone who is very wealthy and is continuing to either 
uh, derive uh, salary or investment uh, income or rent from foreign properties because that would be um, all taxable uh, within the United States if someone comes here as a permanent resident. The other issue about the EB-5 is it has two stages. It has a conditional stage, and then it has a review two years later to make sure that the business has succeeded and created 10 jobs. And um, if that, uh, if you cannot show um, after the probationary period, what's called the conditional residency period, that, um, that the conditions have been met, then even if you have invested a million dollars in the United States, but you haven't, if you've only created six jobs, then there is a substantial potential that your case would be denied and you could be put in removal proceedings to be sent outside, to be removed from the United States, what people refer to as deportation. Um, um, because you have six jobs instead of, you've created six jobs instead of ten jobs. The, well, that, I was just going to say that that program uh, was just extended for another year, but it, it it's only been extended for a year. We don't know for sure if it'll continue. Yes, the um, we we're relatively confident that it will continue, and the reason we would be confident is that it uh, the EB five program has has particularly as it pertains to regional centers has been a series of extensions. Now, what I think that our listeners should be concerned about is that while I remain confident that it will be extended, I would not say that it's going to be extended unchanged. I think that um, sooner or later that, the, um, that several key provisions that, um, that uh, are currently in the law are, uh, will be changed because they're, they're no longer viewed as in the country's greater interest. And uh, there are some arguments that uh, that uh, the number of the 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 way that uh, unemployment statistics are currently gathered to have an area um, declared a targeted employment area has been too lax, and that they need to be um, reduced to one um, to one uh, zip code or one census tract. Um, and if they did that, uh, the argument would be that 75 to 90 percent of all regional centers currently in existence would fail um, because they are conditioned. No one wants to open uh, a luxury hotel in a bad neighborhood. Um, you know, a great, uh, a great number of EB-5 regional centers right now are, are hotel-based or hotel convention center-based or mixed use, which is a hotel, retail, and, uh, and apartments or condominiums. And um, for those to be significant investments, usually they're not in bad neighborhoods. And the, the way this is currently, um, they're currently put together to qualify for half a million dollars of investment rather than a full $1 million of investment is that, uh, that an area is designated as a targeted employment area, TEA, which includes adjacent um, zip codes or census tracts that, uh, that do have um, high unemployment. Uh, in order to qualify uh, as a targeted employment area, the, the area that's approved has to be one and a half times the national unemployment rate. And so as a result, there's complaints from senators from rural states from Vermont and from Iowa and, uh, and other states that, the, that all these investments in New York City um, or in, in Los Angeles are, are not in keeping with the law and the law needs to be changed to not allow for them um, and that the, that the investment needs to be made in rural areas for you know, pork production plants or ski, ski resorts or what have you that create rural employment. So that's a debate that's currently going on and there's, um, the listeners should expect that uh, when the uh, EB-5 comes up for renewal, which I believe is at the end of September, at the end of the fiscal year, um, by October 1st, it will either be, um, there will be a period where EB-5 is not authorized if our, our legislators are, are still debating it, or by that time they will have decided upon changes, significant changes. And there becomes a question as to whether in current investors will be protected by a change in the rules. But okay. again, um, I, I think if there's one thing to remember is 
if the listeners to this podcast are primarily from treaty countries um, with the United States, uh, the Scandinavian countries, most of uh, Northern Europe, then the the e-visa in almost all situations is going to be a much better fit and can be a transitional visa. If you decide at a later time you do want to become a permanent resident, there are other ways to achieve that with not the same level of dollar investment. You can you can get it with a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand dollars worth of investment. You can get an e visa, and it's extendable indefinitely. Meaning you can in perhaps in three year, perhaps in five year increments, just extend the e as long as the business is succeeding. The one thing the U.S. does not have at this time, which has been lobbied for for uh, over two decades, is a retirement visa. Currently, in order to come to the United States based on investment, you have to be involved in some way managing an enterprise. In, um, so in an e-visa, you have to be either a key employee or you have to be the, the, the owner of the entity, um, and you need to be managing and directing it. doesn't mean you have to show up at the office every day, but you have to demonstrate to the consular officer that you're having influence on the direction of the business. Um, you cannot put money in the New York Stock Exchange and just buy a mutual fund, or you cannot buy um, an apartment building and just live off the rent um, from that. You cannot have a passive investment in the uh, in the E category. So that's something for people to remember. What about uh, startups? There's there's a a lot of startups, uh, especially from the Nordic countries that um, are new companies that are just getting off the ground, but they want to be close to someplace like Silicon Valley or Silicon Alley or uh, somewhere else in the United States. Um, how difficult is it for a startup to, to get an e-visa? It is, at this time, um, difficult. Um, we, uh, as far as, let me address two things. First of all, let me tell... Uh, the, the listeners who may be on the uh, the internet that the president um, over uh, 16 months ago in November of 2014 announced initiatives for entrepreneurs and he announced he he ordered citizenship and immigration services and State Department to develop systems to interpret existing categories more broadly to allow for entrepreneurs. Um, and one of the concepts was that they were going to parole entrepreneurs into the United States, which was to grant them this uh, this area of law that's sort of nebulous in the United States, which would be a, a, a discretionary grant, that whether that be one year or two years or three years, that based on a showing of benefit to the United States that they would be admitted to the U.S. The regulations have not made any movement in that particular area. We believe that the, the government is sort of in a roundtabling, um, uh, discussing it amongst themselves about what that would look like, and therefore we're not hopeful that, uh, that, um, that these specific entrepreneurial categories that the president talked about will be implemented um, prior to the end of 2016. Uh, there's a chance that they will be. But right now, we're, we're more or less stuck with the E and the L visa. So if we presume that an entrepreneur is not someone who has an operating entity um, in one of the Nordic countries with multiple employees who will remain there um, and continue producing income and, and working in uh, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, or Finland, um, then you would need to take a look at the e-visa for someone who is just looking to start up in the U.S. And the e-visa allows anyone who can show a substantial investment or substantial trade with the United States to qualify. Now, the word substantial is specifically not defined, and um, the, uh, it's not defined as to a dollar amount. There is a definition for substantial in e, which says that amount which a similarly situated business would need in order to succeed. And so it basically that's, that's you know, looking you know, why a business plan and a, um, 
a uh, due diligence and analysis of competitors in the field and what it's taken for them to be successful is very relevant. And the counselor officer doesn't know that number. There's no, it's not written down in any book. It's up to the applicant to come and present their business plan and present um, their due diligence and what they found regarding this industry and to educate this counselor officer and to convince the counselor officer that because other businesses have been successful with this following a similar type of plan, that my business uh, will likely be successful in the United States. So taking a step back, most treaty investor visas um, are done based on cash. I'm, I'm taking, I'm liquidating my property and I'm taking 100000 or 150000 or 200000 to the United States and I'm putting it in a bank account and I'm spending uh, $2,500 a month or $5,000 renting office space and I've got, um, I'm going to have, you know, two programmers working for me and I'm going to be paying them, you know, each $5,000 a month. So now my spend is $15,000 a month and then understanding where your income is going to be coming from. You can also, um, you can qualify based on other than dollars. Um, you can, you can contribute um, inventory. You can contribute machinery. You can even contribute intellectual property to a business um, as part of your investment. So we've been successful where individuals from Northern Europe come over here and they find some venture capital funding. They're here, as, let's say, as a visitor or on visa waiver ESTA, and they present their, their opportunity to venture capitalists in Boston or in Austin or in Silicon Valley and they get some angel investing of 150 or 200,000 or whatever that amount may be, but that money is coming from Americans. Um, we need to show that the ownership remains 51% Norwegian or 51% Finnish, whatever the, the country might be, because the person coming over must have the same passport as the country that has the treaty. So uh, uh, Norwegian ownership sending over a Norwegian, Finnish ownership sending over a Finn. Um, and so we have to show it's still 51% of that uh, of the company is owned by that nationality. So there would have to be agreements, legal agreements in place that showing while the money, the cash came from these venture capitalists in the United States, that there was intellectual property that had been valued in excess of that cash. Why, why if someone gives you $150,000 and you're just bringing over an idea, how, how come you have 51% or 60% or 70% of the business? And that's because you have um, the, the intellectual property, perhaps the patents, and the key people with the knowledge in their head to make the business successful. And so if you retain that ownership and we can uh, assign a value to that intellectual property, then that would be a type of situation where someone with little to no cash could still qualify for an E visa, but ultimately in any of these categories, whether it be L or E or, or anything else, you have, uh, it cannot be um, based on a desire or a guess or a hope. You must be organized enough to show and convince a consular officer that, that you're prepared for this business, that you've got the necessary resources, the necessary capital, the necessary, um, people and uh, experience in order to be successful. You need a business plan, don't you? Yeah. Well, you need a business plan, but, but what um, I mean that in not merely the dictionary definition of a business plan, it's not that you get a business plan and present it and the visa issues. Rather, you have to have a credible business plan, not something that you slap together based on a template off the Internet not something that merely is 12 pages because, you know, that's what you saw as an example, but something, uh, we have another saying in the United States, you know it when you see it. <laughs> and so you can tell the difference between a template that's been slapped together. And it doesn't matter. You can go out and pay someone $1,000 and go out and pay someone $10,000. You can get this thing bound in leather, the business plan. I've seen those. That doesn't make it more persuasive. Hmm. What makes it persuade, it can be, it can almost, I, I don't mean this when I say this, but it could be handwritten on a yellow, you know, legal pad if it makes sense. 
if it's uh, if it's if a consular officer can look at it and say, "Boy, that's a great idea. I'm sure you're going to be very successful. I wish I was able to invest in that business." You know, it that is that you these cases um, are very much approved based on substance. Hmm. Uh, that's important to know. I think um, many years ago, um, I was in the consulting business, and I had a company come to me uh, from overseas and wanted an off-the-shelf business plan for their visa application. They didn't want a real business plan, so I declined to do it. So I imagine that happens too often. Yes, and what we found is that um, that for the first decade while I was practicing, I, was, I really was not a proponent of business plans. Um, I would go without them. I would think that the, the documentation would speak for itself. But um, as we move into these entrepreneurial type of cases where there is less cash and less activity going on and it is more prospective that I haven't done this yet, but I intend to do this, um, then the business plan is very important. And someone who just wants to put down a few thousand dollars and purchase a business plan, that's going to be transparent. Um, the, the, as I said, the counselor officers, many of them are from Ivy League schools, um, even if uh, – you know, I'm a graduate of a, a state university and very proud of it uh, at the University of Texas, whether it's the University of Michigan, Penn State, uh, you know, Eastern Illinois, whatever it is, you're going to have very intelligent people looking at this business plan, and, and they can tell something that is what the Latin term is pro forma, just something that is, is put together. So it has to speak to them. And what I've been uh, recently most successful is is that uh, working with either incubators uh, uh, some sponsored by the state, uh, some by consortiums, and with universities, sometimes there are very um, intelligent and low-cost services available um, that help you find a location, help you uh, uh, look at different, uh, different uh, buildings or different uh, locations to construct or different um, variants of, of who are the uh, who are the, the the best contributors in a particular field, or who you should model your business after, and they will both guide you in that area, in the areas that you may be weak on. You may be strong in technology, but weak in uh, business management. They'll guide you in that, and then they'll help document those things. So you know, based on uh, the low cost assistance that the uh, the states. Uh, or the cities are willing to provide, or, or they'll have a um, referrals, local referrals to uh, professionals. I, I imagine you probably put people in touch with those those kind of incubators or uh, state development organizations, don't you? We think it's very critical that we, um, at our permit foster, we absolutely have um, what we call teams of uh, of advisors from, yeah, as we said, you know people who can assist with business plans, people who can do the more substantive site location, site comparison, um, business analysis, but also corporate lawyers and perhaps tax advisors. And in limited situations, individuals who may come from wealth or what have you, that maybe they need uh, wills, trust, and estate planning or, or, um, or need to make some, uh, some important transactions in advance of coming to the United States or need to put uh, some of their assets in trust. You know, that, that there's, that's not that common, but uh, what is very common is the, the business planning, the, the need for a, a U.S. corporation. I don't know if we've hit that point, but in the United States, it's very important to um, not own a business personally, um, you just, uh, but rather to form a corporation which you, of which you own shares or of which you're a limited partner and then have that corporation or, or limited liability company or partnership own the building. And that's, that's pretty easy to do, isn't it? In, in uh, most states in the United States, I certainly know in Texas, that can be incorporated on a same-day basis, and you can get a, a identif employer identification number in uh, a day or two as well. That's, it's amazing to some people from other cultures, but uh, setting up a corporate entity and, and being prepared to do business legally in a city or state in the United States is, is ordinarily very quick. Um, and I think in almost all states can be done in less than a week. Um, the key is to be substantively prepared. It's not the technical issue. Well, you've, you've worked with hundreds and uh, I think uh, 
probably thousands of uh, clients. I was wondering if um, what what's the most common error mistake that uh, investors make when trying to enter the U.S. and get a visa? I think it would be assuming. Um, you know, the uh, the uh, investment-based immigration is a tiny fraction of all the U.S. immigration. Um, well more than 50% of immigration to the U.S. is based on marriage to a U.S. citizen. Then, you know, 80% of it is, 80 or greater percent of it is um, family relations of one kind or another coming to the U.S. And then when you get down to L's and E's and EB-5s, for example, I, I have to go back and check the numbers, but I'm certain it's less than 5% of all the immigration to the United States. So when you, when you think about that and you think about what consular officers deal with and what immigration adjudicators deal with and what immigration inspectors see at the airport or at the land border, they're generally unfamiliar with, um, with, the, uh, with the details of Im investor-based immigration. Um, and much of it is word of mouth. And, and after a couple of years, a supervisor picks up some experience so, um, so one of the things I would say, and I, I mean this with all due respect, is the, um, the government authorities, um, we, we do employ uh, commercial officers and other individuals who are, are glad to provide information about the United States and to direct individuals to resources. But um, I do think it is critical for an individual to get professional advice and understand what they need to present, and then pre uh, then to gather that documentation and present it in an approvable format. Because uh, as we started this conversation, I think that um, that uh, assuming that you can uh, just uh, present yourself to a a consular officer and and that based on your having a clear criminal record and and otherwise being a good person that the visa will issue um, that that generally speaking, cannot happen. It, need, it needs to be one where the individual is, has a well-prepared application. So I guess the, the key thing is um, family-based immigration, much of, that, uh, much of that is and can be handled by the immigrant themselves. Investment-based immigration, there are a few individuals out there who can, who can handle it uh, themselves, but not many. Um, I've, I've had... I can recollect to one engineer um, uh, 20 years ago who brought me an application that was um, needed uh, only a little bit of changing here or there. He had spent a lot of time. He was meticulous and whatnot. In the thousands of consultations I've seen from here to there, um, it doesn't match up. What people need to do in the business environment and what they need to present, uh, how they need to present themselves to the government are, are two different states of mind, and uh, it, it, one really needs to be prepared. Well, uh, consular officers and um, commercial officers from the embassies and the consulates, they aren't um, allowed to offer legal advice or legal counsel anyway. Those types of questions have to go to someone like yourself. Uh, Robert, um, the last question uh, for today. I think there's a few visa scams that uh, may be out there that people need to know about um, can you give us any warnings about uh, scams that people should be aware of? Well, I think the main thing is that uh, one should not be sending any money um, for a visa. Um, you know, it, your the the visa is a um, is a decision on paperwork, and the average. Visa application at a consulate is $180 per individual. It's usually a $100 machine-readable visa fee and then an $80 biometrics fee. And there may be ancillary um, visa applications at the time of the, um, that, that, that may come in. But you don't, there's, when you're talking about coming to the United States based on investment, there's no reason to be sending money to anybody in advance for really for any, any reason. You know, you need to come over, look, meet with people, perhaps retain your advisors, um, and go forward from that. The, the, the scams that we're currently seeing are twofold. Number one, 
the visa lottery, which I'm surprised is still really a legitimate thing, which is a, a visa uh, providing um, hundreds of uh, up to 65,000 to the whole world, but uh, visas based on people submitting a postcard um, and uh, based on, coming from countries that are not overrepresented in the United States. And so all the Nordic countries would be eligible for the, uh, the visa lottery. It's just you send in a postcard. And then once you're accepted, then there are minimal uh, uh, processing fees for that. And that's for people who are intending to come and live in the United States, and they have to act upon it um, shortly after their approval. The second thing I would say, and I, I hope this is not a problem in the, uh, the Nordic countries right now, but 88 or 85% of all EB-5 visas are, um, are being issued to the Chinese right now. It's, there is, we're at a unique moment in time where, um, where people who have, earned, who have gone from being in a communist uh, state-controlled economy which, in which there was no wealth um, 15 years ago uh, now is home to uh, tens of thousands and maybe millions of millionaires and, and also billionaires. And those individuals are in a unique situation where they're concerned about their government and they want to have the ability to have uh, travel to the United States or some other country. And so money is at this time being pushed into regional centers in the United States. Perhaps most regional centers in the U.S. are legitimate. However, um, we're seeing um, a, an alarming number um, either become the source of lawsuits or criminal charges or simple business failures. Um, there are dozens failing at this time in the United States, and that number may go into the hundreds in, um, in upcoming years. Um, and that is that the EB-5 regional center um, uh, structure it's not something. It's something that is relevant to a specific class of individuals um, who are looking, who have the money, and are hedging against a future government collapse, and they want to put their their child in the United States and perhaps their spouse in the United States. Most individuals from the Nordic countries will be able to come over, invest, and start a life, and have their children go to school in the United States if that's what they want to do under the, either the E category or the L category. And they would not need to be giving their half a million dollars or their million dollars to someone else and take a, um, a quiet or what's a silent partner role in, in a regional center. So um, I, would, I, I just would make that point that, there, um, that giving half a million or a million dollars to someone else without any substantial understanding of their business uh, and with the belief that they are approved by the, the U.S. federal government because they have an approval number uh, for the regional center, um, that situation lends itself to um, Ponzi schemes, and it also lends itself to, to people who have not been successful in business otherwise getting low-cost or perhaps free money from immigrants, putting it into a business which does not necessarily um, uh, stand a good chance of succeeding, and certainly not for five years or perhaps longer that will require for an EB-5 investor to get their green card. So I would, I guess that's a long way of saying, I would strongly recommend that anyone who is considering making an EB-5 investment contact an independent um, immigration attorney, a, a, preferably a board-certified immigration attorney, and review um, their options ahead of time because um, while, um, as I said, many regional centers are legitimate and lawful and a means for people to um, secure a green card, very few of them are set up for an individual to get that green card and get their money back um, in the future. And, uh, you know, that could be a controversial statement but um, after all the fees and what have you, um, regional centers are, uh, are in, a, in a general sense, are not designed at this time for people to get their, their 
full money that they put in it, into it back. And I'm concerned that we might have thousands of individuals who both lose their investment and lose their immigration status in the upcoming two to five years. Well, that gives us a lot to think about, Robert. I appreciate you being with us today, and I'm sure our listeners do also. Well, thank you very much. I very much appreciate it. All that we've discussed today is a reminder of why investors should connect with an immigration attorney early in the process. We want investors to be successful when they come to the United States. We appreciate all that Robert and his colleagues do to make them successful. We've been talking with Robert Lochran of Foster Global. Thank you very much for spending some time with us. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us this time.